those of you who may not know me, my name is Alita, and I work here at St. Peter's Fireside as our ministry development coordinator. I am not a pastor in the technical sense, but every once in a while I am given the responsibility and great honor of getting to preach. This morning we're in week four of our five-week series on July, or on the Psalms. We want to study the Psalms every July, and we've chosen to study them on an annual basis because, well, they're incredible. The Psalms are a collection of ancient prayers that teach us how to pray, and they teach us how to worship. But more than that, I think they even teach us what it means to be fully human in the way that we pray and worship in all circumstances. The Psalms are diverse and messy and beautiful. And to me, that sounds a lot like life. In their lament and their frustration and their honesty and their praise and their hope, they teach us how we can pursue God in the space of our spiritual brokenness, in the space of this broken world, and in the space of our broken bodies. And they do this all while anchoring us in the character and goodness of God. This morning we'll be diving into Psalm 63. It's a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness. A psalm of the middle space. A psalm of desperation and remembrance. And a psalm of delight. To be honest, when we were first talking about uh, who would preach in this series and which texts we would each take, Alistair told me to just pick your favorite psalm as if that were an easy task. I made a short list of some of my favorites, but I kept coming back to the 11 verses here in Psalm 63. This psalm, probably more than any other, has been the backdrop to my story. So much so that I was initially hesitant to choose to preach on this text because it felt almost too close, a bit too raw, and a bit too personal. But that is exactly the posture and space where this psalm comes from and what makes it so beautiful. In desperation and isolation, David cries out to God. And in doing so, <coughs> he turns his heart towards God in worship. He remembers who God has been to him. He surrenders all that he is to this God again and in doing so, he finds true joy and delight and satisfaction in God. Take a look at verse 1 with me. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David doesn't waste any time getting to the point here. He doesn't hedge this in this approach in kind platitudes. He's desperate, and that language is immediately obvious. And while he does reference a powerful metaphor about being thirsty in a desert without water, David's context was one of both emotional and physical desperation. This psalm was probably written while David was fleeing from his son Absalom and hard-pressed by those who sought his life. He was literally in the wilderness. He was isolated, miles away from the temple in Jerusalem, cut off from the supportive fellowship of God's people. In Jerusalem, he had been the great leader, but now he was an alien on the run in a foreign land. His was a state of loneliness and humiliation and destitution. And yet, David's circumstances didn't turn his heart against God. In fact, and this is the crucial turning point in this psalm, they brought out his desperation for God and drove him deeper into his hunger for God. 
Because what's also immediately obvious in the opening of this psalm is how deeply personal this address is. This isn't David yelling into the night sky with some ambiguous prayer to a higher power if you're out there. He calls out to a God that he refers to as his own. Oh God, you are my God. If you think about that, we only refer to things in the possessive when we're confident in the depth and closeness of a relationship. I will proudly refer to my nephews as my nephews and the oldest one as my Marty man because I love them and I love being associated with them. There's ownership there, much like any relationship. A wife refers to her husband, a boyfriend to his girlfriend, a sister to her brother, and all of us to our friends as our friends. So when David refers to my God, He's immediately reaching out with the eagerness of a close friend, reaching out to someone that he holds dear. His, his language is even almost that of a lover, the kind of I can't live without you sentiment that we go crazy about in love stories. David's whole being, his soul and his flesh, is deeply restless and unsatisfied without God. But remember his context. He's in the wilderness. He's alone. And this God, this God that he loves and is longing for, doesn't seem to be responding. His desperation is met with silence. For honest, I think this is a space we're all familiar with, where for whatever reason, whether it's circumstantial and outside of our control, or due to our own wandering hearts and our neglect of seeking God, God feels like he's a million miles away. Where the moment, and the memories of the times when God did feel near, near almost feel distant and almost even cruel, where the sunshine is hidden and we feel a bit stuck in the unrelenting rain. My dad passed away from cancer two and a half years ago, and in the space since losing him, I've developed a habit that can be most accurately described as making a massive thermos of tea, grabbing my favorite bay blanket, and running away to the mountains or the ocean so I can cry and pray. It's become a bit of a sacred routine, a place where I get away with God and try to process the roller coaster of pain and hurt and hope and new life that come in the process of grieving someone that you love. There were days in the middle of winter when I would pull into the parking lot at Porto Cove and curl up by the ocean where God felt like he was almost sitting right next to me and tangibly comforting me. But there were, and have mostly been, days where he felt so far away, where I felt absolutely aware of how alone I was, and like I was running on old memories of joy and God's goodness and very few up-to-date happening in real-time examples. I remember crying out in that space for God to draw near to me, to rescue me, to take away the pain some way, somehow. But I rarely got an answer, and I certainly didn't get the quick response for the pain that I wanted. But I don't think that's an unfamiliar space for many of us either at various times in our stories. And I imagine that's probably a glimpse of how David felt here in the wilderness. And yet, let's look back at how David responds. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. 
So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find verses more beautiful and profound and life-altering than these. Circumstances don't change the posture of David's heart. He doesn't ignore his circumstances or gloss over their difficulty, but he does look beyond them and below them to the foundation that has always been his foundation, God himself. And in that space, in the rawness and the desperation, he crafts a deeply personal song of worship that speaks directly into that specific context. In his commentary on this psalm, Jonathan Edwards said this, David did not leave off singing because he was in the wilderness. Neither did he in slovenly idleness go on repeating psalms intended for other circumstances. But he carefully made his worship suitable to his circumstances and presented to God a wilderness hymn when he was in the wilderness. And though there was desert all around him, there was no desert in his heart. There was no desert in his heart. So what was David's secret? What made him able to pull a Gene Kelly and sing and dance in the rain? What great revelation did he have of God that made him able to stand and worship God in the midst of the wilderness? Why was he able to find comfort in the midst of such a difficult space? Seems like a simple answer, but stick with me here. David could worship in the wilderness because he knew God. He didn't just know about God He knew God. His wasn't just a theological framework or a cultural understanding of the scriptures. He wasn't recalling stories that he had been told. He knew the character of God on a personal level. He had experienced his presence. He had beheld his power and his glory, likely referencing both experiences in the physical temple, an example of God's faithfulness throughout all of his story up to this point. It's worthwhile to note that this psalm falls within the so-called second book of the psalms, which is composed of Psalm 42 to 72. Within this second book, God is often referred by the name Elohim. Elohim is the name used for God in the opening verse of the Bible. Elohim is the God who created all that exists. He is the God who sustains and governs all of creation by his power. And yet in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, the same name is referenced to speak of Jesus Christ, the great Elohim who became man so he could step into human existence and reconcile us to God. This is the same glorious and powerful Elohim who David knew as his. And it's the same God who eagerly, he ex- eagerly expects to know as a comforting presence in the wilderness. David knew and worshipped God both as the God who created and sustained all things and the God who is deeply and personally invested in the context and personal details of his life. This enables David to look back in time when he has seen God at work and where he has witnessed God's power to times when God has been his his deliverer, his protector, and his supporter. He remembers the faithfulness of God. His words echo that of Lamentations 3 that say, This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, Elohim.
Even when his present circumstances don't easily testify to this faithfulness of God, David knows God so well that he can anchor himself in God's unchanging character and remind himself of this character when his heart is tempted to question if it's still true. His ability to see God as both big and near made him able to see beyond his own context. And then he says something so mind-blowingly crazy. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Better. It's a quantifiable and qualitative statement that we understand well. Our culture makes judgment statements like this all the time. We know that in sports, gold is better than silver, that a sale price tag is better than paying full price for the same item, that kale is better for you than candy, and that Taylor Swift's music is better than Katy Perry's. Okay, that, was, that, that last one is just a dig at Alistair, but um, the word better implies a clear statement of value. It sets up a clear comparison between one thing and another, and it says that for whatever reason, one thing is superior. And this statement of surpassing worth that David gives is sweeping in its scope. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. It's better than anything physical, better than anything we can see or know outside of God's presence, better than the entirety of human experience, better than all of our best memories combined, better than life itself. That's one, that's one heck of an all-encompassing statement. The world of sports has always been a major part of my story. I played as many sports as I possibly could growing up, and I excelled in nearly all of them. By high school, I was a competitive athlete and consumed by the world of soccer, cross country, and track and field. Sports made sense to me in a way that few other things did. I felt more alive and free running than I did anywhere else. I loved the competition and the pressure, and I even thrived off the amount of work that was demanded of you if you wanted to be amongst the best. And I wanted to be amongst the best. By the time I was in grade 10, all of my dreams and aspirations were wrapped up in my athletic pursuits. I read articles about university scholar athletes. I knew that's exactly what I wanted to be. I was, and admittedly still am, a bit obsessed with all things Olympics and dreamed of one day running for Team Canada. I was an athlete. It was what I loved. It was my identity. I was going to pay my way through university on an athletic scholarship, and I was going to use my platform as an athlete to speak boldly about my faith. It was a beautiful plan, really. And then I got hurt. In one of the highest stakes, race, highest stakes races of my young career, I tore a muscle and tendon in my right hip, which is even more painful in reality than it sounds. And almost in an instant, it felt like my dreams and my life as I knew it came crumbling down around me. Instead of long training runs, podium finishes, and new personal bests, I became familiar with crutches, hours at physio, and a long string of doctor's appointments where I was told I may never run or play soccer without pain again. I felt lost. My paradigm of the world being full of endless possibility and people being rewarded for hard work and having a good attitude 
was shattered. For the first time in my relationship with God, I wrestled with God. I railed against him for what felt like an injustice against me. I reminded him of all the amazing things that I was going to do for him through my running. I struggled to see beyond what I had lost, beyond what I felt had been stolen from me. I didn't know who I was if I wasn't an athlete. The irony of this is that at this point in my racing career, I had adopted the practice of writing and retracing with the Sharpie the references of two verses on the inner flaps of my track spikes before every meet. The first one was 1 Timothy 1.17 that says, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The second, Psalm 63, verses 3 and 4. Maybe this was God's hilarious way of preparing my heart even just a little bit for what was coming. Or maybe my skills in exegesis were a little bit underdeveloped when I, I adopted this practice. But the very verses that I called to mind and that I prayed before every single race were the verses that I needed to live in the wilderness space to realize the idol that I had built up around sport. What my injury quickly exposed was the reality that I had only given lip service to God's love being better than life because I didn't even live as though I believed that God's love was better than winning races. The reality was, even though I would have never vocalized it as such, was that I wanted my dreams and my successes and I wanted God as much as I could have him so long as he would fit neatly around my plan. But that's not worship. That's idolatry. And so there's two things this all-encompassing language that David uses does. In its scope, it requires that we face and dismantle the idols we've built up in place of God. And it refocuses our gaze on his beauty and reminds us why he is so much better. First, let's tackle the monster of idolatry. Here's the deal. Worship is fundamental to who we are. To worship is to be human. We reflect God's glory by our worship of him, which means that we hold him as the object of our deepest desires. We worship him because we delight in who he is and we want to be like him. But worship is not just singing songs in church or listening to the newest house church EP in your earbuds as you ride the SkyTrain or drive to work. It's how we live our lives, every moment of every day. Worship is a combination of every thought, word, deed, feeling, and desire. Mike Wilkerson accurately described worship as a garden hose stuck on full blast. You can aim it at the grass, or at the car, or in the shrubs, but you cannot stop its flow. The question is not if we will worship. The question is what we will worship. The bottom line is that we all worship whatever it is that we live for, whatever we deem most worthy of our attention and our devotion. And so, in many ways, worship and idolatry are nearly synonymous. Let me ask you this. Is there anything you see as being so central and essential in your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly, hardly feel worth living? You've placed that thing or that person in the place of worship. 
Where do your thoughts effortlessly go to when there is nothing else demanding your attention? What do you enjoy daydreaming about? What occupies your mind when you have nothing else to think about? Those are the very things that are in danger of being or becoming idols. How do you define your identity and your value and your worth? It's those things that you worship. I can't tell you what you idolize, but I'm sure you can fill in the blank for yourself. Your spouse? person you love, your desire to be married, your family, your job, how much you travel, how you spend your weekends, the numbers on your paycheck, the social justice or political campaigns you support, that addictive habit that you just can't shake. To whom or to what are the affections of your heart pointed? But let's look back to this psalm and the way that it shows us what our remedy is against this idolatry. How can we fight against this idolatry and find joy in something so much greater? How do we move to the second part of what this language does? This refocusing our hearts on the reason that God is astonishingly better than anything else. It's the exact same answer as to why David could compose such a stunning song of praise in the midst of the wilderness. We need to know God. We must gaze upon his face in the place of worship to seek the Lord and to praise his name. We praise what we love and further we truly enjoy what we love by praising it. And so we draw near to God so we can begin to know him like David knew him. And when we do, we find that it is not us who have sought him out, but him who has pursued us. Let's look back at the language David uses here. In referencing the steadfast love of the Lord, he uses the word hesed. Hesed refers to the consistent, ever faithful, relentless, constantly pursuing, lavish, extravagant, unrestrained, one-way love of God. Is said is founded in God's infinitely gracious character. But again, the juxtaposition of value here is staggering. Hesed is so distinctly beyond and more beautiful than any love that can be expressed in human terms. This Elohim is a savior rich in one-sided Hesed love. This is a God who is compassionate and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is a God who is abundantly faithful, a God who forgives and casts our sins as far as the east is from the west. This is a God who is just, a God who draws near to the brokenhearted, and the God who is endlessly good. The only way that we can address and dismantle the idols that we've built up in our lives is to let the character and love of God speak into them and draw our hearts back into something so much better. Timothy Keller wrote this. Have you heard God's blessing in your inmost being? Are the words, you are my beloved child in whom I delight, an endless source of joy and strength? Have you sensed through the Holy Spirit God speaking to you? That blessing 
The blessing through the spirit that is ours through Christ is the only remedy against idolatry. Only that blessing makes idols unnecessary. But we usually discover this only after a life of looking for blessings in all the wrong places. It often takes an experience of crippling weakness for us to finally discover it. This is why so many of the most God-blessed people limp as they dance for joy. The same language echoes throughout scripture and throughout the history of followers of Christ. The same understanding of God's immeasurable worth is what inspired Paul to write that nothing compares to Christ. Nothing. In Philippians 3, Paul wrote, but, ever, but whatever was gains to me, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul literally equates everything aside from God to rubbish. God is extravagantly worthy and endlessly beautiful in the world in comparison, a rotting pile of garbage. When this understanding that God's love is truly better than life sinks into our hearts and just glimpses and glimmers, our lives change forever. It changes everything, absolutely everything. It's this understanding that God's love is better than anything and everything else that makes the persecuted church around the world and martyrs throughout history willing to give up their very lives for the sake of staying faithful to Christ. It's what allows us to see money as a tool and a gift, not a value statement. What inspires people to sell everything that they own and give their possessions to the poor what motivates people to live more, bo more boldly with generosity and hospitality and kindness in their neighborhoods. It's what makes us say yes to things that we never thought we'd say yes to and no to things that we thought we wanted. It's what makes us better spouses and friends and parents because it's the very thing that holds us back from looking for more satisfaction in those people than they can give to us. When this has said love flows in and through us, we are never the same. God becomes our single dream, our exceedingly great reward, our all-consuming ambition. He becomes the central treasure and goal of life. And as the words of the classic hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, say, everything else grows strangely dim in light of his glory and his grace. Let's look back to how the psalm ends. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich foods, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remembered you upon my bed and meditated on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. The psalm ends with satisfaction, with deep reliance, and with David surrendering all that he is to this God again. David has celebrated God as his desire. He's found comfort in God as his far-surpassing delight. 
And he now roots himself in the satisfaction as, of God as his defense. In the shadow of God's wings, David can sing for joy. David's hunger for God extends beyond the desire from relief from present suffering to a deeper ultimate relief that's found in only God himself. Yes, there is still pain and danger, but he has a refuge and a comfort in God. In this, David gives us a glimpse into how he can live in the unresolved middle space. He not only looks back to God's faithfulness, he looks forward to being involved in such worship again. He looks ahead with the conviction that God's commitment doesn't change, that mourning and weeping and isolation will end, and he will experience deliverance, protection, and support once more. And in doing so, the psalm also clearly reminds us that none of our painful trials or wilderness spaces are outside the control of our loving God. God is not removed or aloof when we are in the wilderness. The wilderness drove David face down in worship in a way that celebration couldn't. When we're separated from many of the things that give us comfort, we learn to look to God, to trust more deeply in him, and to desire his presence above all else. Out of the depths of loneliness, God creates fresh longing and desire for him, which is quenched only by true communion in him. And the wilderness has a humbling and beautiful way of exposing our idols for the weak and pathetic and unsatisfying little g-gods that they are. Our shallow dreams often crumble when they're under pressure. Our addictions and our desires fade in strength and worth. And in the wilderness, the tendency of our hearts to wander and to chase things that don't deserve our affections or our attention becomes way more clear to us. It's in the wilderness when we realize how desperate we really are, how desperate we always have been. Paul David Tripp wrote this, and it's what we used as a call to worship this morning. Tender, heartfelt worship is hard for a person who thinks of himself as having arrived. No one celebrates the presence and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ more than the person who has embraced his desperation and daily need of it. And in that, the wilderness is a gift. Those ocean and mountain spaces where I would escape to cry and meet with God are now some of the most beautifully profound moments and spaces in my story. And the places where I used to primarily see what I have lost are some, now some of the spaces where I most clearly see God's grace and his presence. The middle space of this life is the best place for us because it keeps us desperate and hungry and aware of how much we need God. But it also teaches us how to worship. It points us back to the far surpassing worth of knowing him and being known by him. It roots us in the delight of this God who gave everything for us. We praise the one who is vastly better than anything that the world could offer. The wilderness reminds us that his love truly is better than life itself. Because nothing, and that truly means nothing, compares to the love of this God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. 
May our lips forever praise him.